We next have uh, Professor Cameron Stewart, who joins us from the University of Sydney. Professor Stewart is a member of the Sydney Centre for Health Governance, Law and Ethics, and an associate of the Centre for Values, Ethics and Law in Medicine. Do you want me to just no, fast fine. track it? Yeah. He's going to uh, explore the idea of protection for innovators by addressing the topic regulating innovation, advocating for codes of practice. Please welcome Professor Stewart. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Um, uh, what I want to, I'm going to, like Bernadette, I've, I'm basing a lot of the things that I'm about to say on uh, discussions that we've already had, particularly what Wendy's been talking about, what Megan's been talking about, and what Bernadette's been talking about. But essentially, um, I want to look at the problem of how we define regulation and then, uh, then how do we create a form of regulation that actually is going to have some teeth. So they're the two particular issues that I'm interested in. The, the question of regulating innovation really is uh, heavily dependent on the definition of what, of what innovation actually is. And we know from the experience in the UK that it can be highly problematic to try and define what innovation is. Lord Saatchi uh, and his original bill tried to create a scheme where innovators would face no uh, civil or criminal liability for, for trying new things. But it's interesting that in that original bill, he didn't actually define what innovation was. Completely didn't even try to, to create a definition of what innovation was. Um, later on, that bill got uh, successively watered down. So what we have now is uh, a, a register, basically. Um, and uh, this morning I asked James about whether he was, uh, as someone who was an innovator, whether he would, was ever interested in, in putting his work on the register, and you know the answer, which was no, uh, and that hardly anyone's even heard about it. The point of the register, again, originally, after Lord Saatchi decided to step away from the process, was if you registered, then you would get a protection. You wouldn't be able to be sued civilly if it was uh, if it was registered and you were publishing the details of your innovation. But but as it stands, the final version removed all of that completely. So what they ended up with is a register, which apparently isn't funded uh, and one that no one's ever going to use. So uh, that's kind of not where we want to go for regulation. I would suggest. So in terms of the definition, what's interesting is they did define a definition. I think this is generally a problem with defining innovation is that if we're going to define it, we have to define it negatively. We have to, we have to say what it's not. Uh, and in Wendy's discussion, um, I think that was coming through because Wendy was saying, they were asking, well, how is this different from what you normally do? How is this different from when we do this? So it's, it's in the negative that we can find a space for in innovation. Um, that also, I think, leads to a problem as well. A lot of the attempts are to try to define innovation as a thing in and of itself. But I think personally that's the wrong way around. I think we should be thinking about innovation teleologically. By that I mean, what's its function? What do we want it to achieve? So what is good about innovation and how do we set up a scheme that captures the good things and minimises the bad things? And I don't apologise for being very Millsian when I say that. Okay, so innovation, I think, is a virtue. We're trying to encourage it as a virtue. It's certainly used a lot like that. And in our studies that Megan and I have been doing with our team and in the conversations we've been having with doctors who see themselves as stem cell innovators, a lot of the discussion that came out of that 
sort of set themselves up and their self sort of perception was that they were sort of uh, pioneers, that they were going forward and that they were treating the patients that no one else was going to treat, that they were looking after the abandoned and the hopeless and, and those sort of, that sort of uh, story of hope, that narrative of hope and, and desperation and, and, and struggle was a really an important part of their self-image, that that's the way they saw themselves. And even, interestingly, I think one of the things that one of the doctors said is that innovation was a right that doctors had, that we had a right to innovate. So it was part of the professionalist idea that I am a professional and as part of my kit of professional values is that I should be innovating, it's something I should be doing. And again, we can see it in the national law, Bernadette just pointed out, it's right in there, it's up front. The thing about professionalism though, it's not just about innovation, it's about a whole heap of other things too. And it's important then that if we're using uh, innovation as a virtue, we need to recognise the other virtues of professionalism. That is, we're seeking to do good, we're seeking to avoid harm, we're working in situations of, of trust and dependency, uh, and that we've got care and we've got responsibility. These are the other virtues of professionalism too. Um, and so I think that, again, if we're trying to define innovation and it is a professional virtue, then we need to uh, let the professions themselves help us define what it is. And that's exactly, what I think, what Wendy's project has been in the surgical sphere. And that's something that I'm suggesting we do as well in the area of stem cells. So Megan's already pointed out the problems that we've currently got with the stem cell area. We've got an un we, we, we had an accidental, I think, uh, opening of an unregulated field as one in which there was a market and high demand vulnerable populations willing to pay lots of money. And what's happened is it's been flooded by people who've been attracted to that, uh, professionals who've been attracted to that. And um, the, the language of innovation is through all of these different websites. And Megan's already pointed out a lot of the problems with these things. Um, what we've seen is an is a increasing explosion in the number of clinics, lots of misleading advertising about the effectiveness and safety of these, uh, these experiments. Um, and there's also lots of legitimation techniques that these uh, clinics are using. They talk about things in a science-y way. So I've put science-ness, it's got the stink of science all over the website. Um, they also use other language too, which is misleading. They talk about trials or they talk about patents being pending. It looks very much like the language of science, but it's not. Um, we're also seeing very high cost of treatment, which Megan uh, pointed to, and we do have vulnerable patients. And now, unfortunately, we've had our first death. So I think we're at the point where we really do need to take this uh, very seriously, um, because whilst the innovation is obviously something that's a virtue, I think the other virtues of professionalism are being sort of deeply affected by these practices. So how do we solve this problem then? If this is an area where innovation seems to be a, a little bit off the leash, how do we solve it? Well, one of the things I suggest we do is come up with a code. And this is certainly what Wendy's been doing in the surgical area. And it's certainly what's been happening in stem cell, uh, autologous stem cell therapies in other places. For example, in America, the International Society for Stem Cell Research has created another code that, that also talks about other values in addition to innovation. I think if we begin with a negative definition of, of uh, innovation as that which is not standard practice, and then we drill down into that like Wendy has done in the area of surgery, then we can come up with something that's very usable and workable. But we also need to spell out the other things that are necessary, the, 
the good things that we want to achieve. So back to that teleological function. Innovation serves a purpose. The purpose is to provide better outcomes ultimately for patients. So that means that according to the uh, IWSCR, that if you're doing this, you have to have proper support structures. If you're doing this, you have to be properly qualified. If you're doing this, you have to go through a very, very careful process of informed consent. If you're doing this, you have to be, have a clear pathway for how you deal with adverse events. So we know where we go, we know what we do if a patient starts bleeding out from a liposuction. Um, we also have to be appropriately insured. And finally, there has to be a commitment to dissemination of knowledge. That is key. So it can't just be the fake uh, patent pending type declarations or creation of what we've seen one particular provider do is create trials, get a registered trial number, and then never do any work on it. Um, we, have to, we have to make this something that's real and there has to be a commitment to it. Now this is all work that's been done before. It's very similar to the work that Wendy's group's been doing in surgery. So we set these things up, but the big problem that we have is that there are no teeth. If you want this to work, there has to be teeth. So how can we make this enforceable? My own view, which is still emerging, but it's one I'm, I'm settling upon more and more, is the idea that it's really going to be up to APRA to do this. There is some stuff that the TGA can do in the space of biologicals, which Megan talked about, but we've seen twice they've asked for submissions and twice it seems they don't really feel the, they don't really, I don't know whether they have the ability or whether they have the will, I don't know, but they don't seem to be willing to step up. The other person that seems clearly able to do this is APRA. APRA has the capacity to create codes of practice. APRA can then use the codes of practice to enforce by looking at failure to comply as, as Bernadette's gone through, professional misconduct, unsatisfactory conduct, etc. If we, if we can come up with a code of innovation and we can get APRA to apply it, then at least we can start having a conversation where people have to take notice. Of course, there's one third piece missing. There's another piece missing. And that is the piece of enforcement. And not only will we have to uh, have a code and then put it into uh, place, it then has to be policed. And of course, that's problematic as well. But APRA, I think, is it's only been around since 2010. I think it's getting better at doing that type of thing. And of, and of course, there's complications through the different co-regulatory models, et cetera. But I think there's enough evidence for us now to, at least in Australia, in the stem cell area, to show that this is something that does need to happen. When people start dying, when people start losing their fortunes, I think it's, it is time to take this stuff seriously. So that's my argument in a nutshell. Um, we get the profession to help us set the standard. So it is, it's coming from the profession, we, but we put it into the machinery. And once the machinery's got it and it is enforced, then we can have uh, a real hard look at whether what's going on is innovative or whether it's quackery. Thanks. Oh, and I should, I just want to thank uh, the members of my team, Megan obviously, but Ian Kerridge, uh, Wendy Lipworth, Kathy Walby, Tamara, Lysite, uh, Teresa,
Hendel and uh, Sung Lee. Thanks.